The next hour will inform you on how cybersecurity is one of the most significant threats to our national security, as well as the battle that cybersecurity experts are undergoing every day on your behalf to protect you, your families, and your data. Welcome to Task Force 7 Radio with your host, the president and CEO of Task Force 7 Radio and Task Force 7 Technologies, George Reedus. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode number 166 of Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm Andy Bonello, pinch hitting for George Reedus. I want to emphasize all opinions expressed in the show on my own, not that of my present or past employers. I'll never disclose any sensitive intelligence that I'm privileged to as a result of my current employment. I'll never knowingly disclose any classified information related to any security clearances I presently hold or have held in the past with the United States government. And nothing I say during the show should be construed as legal or financial advice. Well, folks, last week we had Drew Moorfield, Vice President of the Cyber Center of Excellence for Capgemini, join me on the show last week to give me his perspective on what cybersecurity resilience programs will look like moving into 2021. Drew also talked about naming, being named one of the top 25 cybersecurity IT executives of 2020, the importance of being part of good teams and how that's paramount to your success. And then we wrapped up the show by discussing how the pandemic and limitations for in-person interaction has transformed the way teams collaborate in the workplace. All this and much, much more in episode number 165 of Task Force 7 Radio. If you missed it, don't sweat it. You can find us everywhere on Playback, folks. That's episode that's Cybersecurity Resilience in 2021 on last week's episode. That's episodes 165 of Task Force 7 Radio. Well, I'm super pumped again this week, folks. I've got another return guest for you, the inventor of X Analytics and Chief Analytics Officer of uh, Secure Systems Innovation Corporation, Mr. Bob Vessio. Bob, as the uh, Chief Analytics Officer of, and the inventor of X Analytics, he's recognized as one of the industry's foremost experts in the area of cyber risk economics, bringing more than 20 years of experience to his role. Bob is responsible for the creation and development of X-Analytics, the company's proprietary patented method for measuring and modeling cyber risk. Previously, Bob served as the Global Director of Verizon's Advanced Security Services, Verizon's Security Services Management Program, and Verizon's MSS Client Services Team. In his tenure, he was responsible for pre-sales support, product management, service delivery, and operations, quality and assurance, risk modeling, and executive sponsorship. All right, folks. Well, it's my pleasure to welcome back to the show, inventor and chief analytics officer of X Analytics, Mr. Bob Vessio. Bob, welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, buddy. Thank you. Thank you for having me on again. Yeah, man. Look, I love chatting with you. Uh, we've gone back a long time. We worked at Verizon together. You did some really cool stuff there that you've taken out into the market with the invention of X Analytics. And now you guys have just had a recent announcement about the evolution of that. Uh, I'd love to hear a little bit more about what you're doing uh, with X Analytics and the platform. Yeah, um, we just announced uh, version 3.0. So a uh, little background, we, we started building our method and model back in 2016. As you know, we started getting pretty good adoption of the model in the beginning of 2017. So we spent about a year in initial development. But uh, here in 2020, with the launch of 2021, um, we're uh, on version three of X Analytics. Um, and we made some significant updates from the previous version. Uh, we added in a module for supply chain. Um, obviously, we, we know that there's a lot of organizations that are struggling with understanding the financial exposure related to their supply chain ecosystem. Um, so that new module that we've added allows organizations to understand specifically what the financial exposure looks like per supply chain member, as well as what the ecosystem at large looks like for their entire organization. 
Uh, we've also, uh, for the first time, have enough data that we can start to look at the probability um, of events based on the severity of the event. So historically, when we would show the probability of, say, a million record data breach, you know, we would give impacts that were from low to worst case. And we really couldn't uh, specifically provide the probability of what uh, the low impact would be as compared to the worst case impact. Uh, but now in version three, we are measuring distinct probabilities um, and distinct efficiency curves uh, for low all the way to worst case. So that's something that's new here that we can really start to give out some much better information and much better guidance as a result of that shift in the probability data. Um, and then um, we've expanded a lot of our reporting capabilities. We really look at our dashboards as a decision management platform. And the idea there is that we don't want people just to look at the data one time and then move away from it. We want them to be able to look at the data and really focus in on the dashboards that allow them to make informed risk management decisions. And we realize that those decisions are gonna shift and pivot over time. And so we have uh, enterprise-wide roll-up dashboards that allow an organization to understand what their risk tolerance is and which uh, either business units or which uh, loss categories are outside of that risk tolerance so that they can make the necessary remediation and risk transfer-based decisions. We have specific dashboards for risk transfer so that they can understand what specific scenarios would look like and how much of that risk may be transferable if that's something that they choose to entertain on their side. Um, and then um, we have a whole new set of series of dashboards that are related to different frameworks. So for example, if you were a NIST cybersecurity framework shop, you could look at the NIST dashboards and specifically say, wow, you know, where would I get the biggest improvement in my expected loss uh, value if I were to concentrate on, um, say, the identify function or the protect function of NIST? So each of those NIST functions are laid out as possible what-if scenarios and it would very clearly show um, where you could get the biggest improvement to expected loss if you focused in on the right NIST functions. We've also done the same thing with the NIST tiers. If you were currently, say, uh, measuring somewhere around a 1.5 a NIST tier, so that's on a scale of zero to four. Um, and if you were to move up to a NIST tier two state, then what would your expected loss value look like by just making that shift from a 1.5 to a 2.0. Same thing if you made a shift to a 2.5 or a three or a 3.5, or finally achieved a full four tier status, um, what would that expected loss amount look like? Um, and then we've also done the same thing with the strict definitions within those tier groupings. And we tend to find is that a lot of our customers that are using those NIST dashboards can very easily look and say, wow, if I just put a lot of my attention in integrated risk management programs, then I could really make a significant shift in that expected loss value so that my world's going to look better over the next 12 months or 18 months or whatever that time frame happens to be. Right. So, um, so when so you, those, you talked a little bit about the like risk transfer uh, portion of cyber insurance, right? Are you seeing any, um, I know years ago there was still like a little bit of um I'll call it tension between the CISO community and the cyber insurance as it relates to, well, if I'm not, if I have to transfer the risk, maybe I'm not doing my job right. Are you, I feel like that's shifted in a different direction and I feel like that may not be there, but are you seeing, you know, CISOs enjoying being armed with the understanding of like how much risk I can transfer and what I need to invest in? Are you, what's your, what do you see in there? It, we're seeing some of that. Um, what we're tending to find Andy is that uh, when organizations purchase 
say, X Analytics Enterprise, which is sort of our premier offering in the marketplace. Um, it's really a joint purchase where it's not only the chief information security officer that's gone in on, on the purchase, but it's also the chief risk officer that's gone in on the purchase. And the chief risk officer is specifically focused on making that transfer decision for the organization. And, um, and we tend to find is that some of our customers are self-insured, so they can look at those transfer uh, dashboards as a way to figure out if they have enough money on reserve for uh, self-insured entities. Um, and other cases, if they're looking to seek out insurance from, say, like a carrier, uh, then they can use those transfer dashboards to determine, you know, wh- first, which um, insurance components do I need to purchase? A- as you and I both know, um, the components for data privacy are different than the components for something, say, like ransomware, because you don't get that extortion coverage. Or if business interruption is your big concern, then, you know, you need to make sure that you get the right components for business interruption. So that's one part of it, just making sure that they're getting the right components. The second is uh, to make sure that they purchase a limit or sublimits that are related to their specific profile, their specific business. And we tend to find is that even today, a lot of those insurance decisions are underpurchased. Um, and you know, I hate to continue to use the Equifax case as an example, um, but you know, now we're looking at uh, a total of $1.7 billion of total damage. They were insured and it paid out in full for 125 million. Um, but that just shows that uh, that massive void between what's being purchased as insurance as compared to what total damages look like post cyber incident. Um, and I think those chief risk officers are trying to figure out how to get uh, the right amount purchased so that if they were to have a, uh, a significant event or a catastrophic event, that there would be some protection for the shareholders and some protection for the organization in itself. The chief risk officers uh, still today want to make sure that they're helping out the, or sorry, the chief information security officers want to make sure that they're still helping out the chief risk officers. But I tend to find that they're still very focused on due diligence and due care for their business. So a lot of what they're focusing on is shifting uh, budgets and remediation efforts to focus on the right things versus the wrong things. And I think that's gonna sort of, that trend's gonna continue to take place uh, as we go through 2021. Even though they're concerned about risk transfer, it's not really fundamentally the key part of their job. But I'll pause there, Andy, to see if that answers your question. Yeah, no, it's good. And I'm curious to get your take too, just, you know, cyber economics. I mean, look, I think there's gonna be I, I wouldn't. I would expect at some point, maybe this year, you know, there'll be a, you know, a category within the analyst community around cyber economics. Um, I, there's just so much happening in this space, and you're obviously at the the fr- forefront of it. Um, are you? Are, do you feel like the concept of cyber economics is? being driven mainly because of insurance or, or, or from boards? Or do you think the CISO community is saying, no, I really need this? Um, are, are the CISOs being reactive to this or are they being proactive to, 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 to measuring in dollars? Yeah, I still think it depends on the, the organization and, and the maturity of the CISO. Uh, and I don't mean maturity in any sort of negative way either. Um, you know, clearly when you look at risk from an enterprise-wide view and all risk, right? Uh, real estate risk, uh, you know, casualty, uh, it doesn't matter, right? When you look at risk from an enterprise-wide view, a lot of those risk um, understandings are in some sort of financial detail. 
And cyber still today happens to be one of those risks when it finally does roll up into that enterprise-wide view where it's related to historic metrics. You know, mean time to repair, how many tickets are being closed, how many vulnerabilities are being remediated, or you know, even things like what is our alignment to a particular framework? Are we SOC 2, SOC 3 certified? Do we have our ISO 27001 certification? You know, that tends to be the message. But what we're finding is that um, when you look at the risk register, when you look at the uh, risk performance uh, or the risk indicators of an organization, um, what we tend to find is that there are specific thresholds and tolerance levels. And those thresholds and tolerance levels are articulated in dollars. So if something's above so many millions of dollars, then it's considered you know, maybe moderate risk. But if it's above another amount, then it's considered high risk to the organization. And cyber is not fitting easily into that unless it's um, converted from traditional metrics into financial metrics. Now, um, you know, the, the corporate directors, the executive leadership team, uh, including the chief risk officer, they really want to understand what cyber risk means in financial detail. So I think they're part of that shift, part of trying to get that understanding. Uh, because it allows them to compare it to other risk in the business. And it also allows them to make necessary decisions in an informed uh, method um, where I still think that um, there are CISOs out there that are uncomfortable with shifting from traditional metrics into financial metrics. And the main reason for that is that I think that they're afraid that their budgets are going to disappear. If they show an expected loss that isn't all that significant, then it may be interpreted as, oh, wow, then we can reduce your budget. And I think that fear is going to fade over time, but I think there's some of that leftover fear from what's occurred in the past. Um, and as the CISOs are really becoming embedded with the executive leadership team, with the corporate directors, you know, through recurring board meetings, um, or uh, even more closely bound to the chief risk officer, then I think they are very openly adopting that transformation of traditional metrics into financial metrics. Yeah. Again, Andy, I'll pause here to yeah, say it that. Yeah, makes a lot of sense, man. Look, I got, I got tons of questions for you. We're going to take a quick break. So, hey, if you're a social media junkie, don't forget to follow TF7 Radio on your favorite social media platform. Follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, and even Instagram at searching at TF7 Radio. And you'll be connected to the extended TF7 family and on your favorite social media platform. For inquiries regarding sponsoring the show or suggestions for topics or guests, please email George directly at george.redis at tf7radio.com. That's george.redis at tf7. That's with the number seven, folks, radio.com. We're going to pause for quick messages from our sponsors, then we'll be right back with inventor and chief analytics officer of X Analytics, Mr. Bob Vessio. So whatever you do, don't go away. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. As CISOs manage known malware attacks, they also contend with the unknown unknowns. With 24-7 Hacker Innovation, where do CISOs place their next security investment bet? Find the answer with Signet. With forums and public and private partnership dinners in Toronto, London, Singapore, Tokyo, and across the U.S., 
Cynet is a mission-focused, purpose-driven global community advancing the next generation of cybersecurity solutions. As an entrepreneurial ecosystem super connector, Cynet brings innovators, top cybersecurity professionals, solution providers, investors, and government executives into a collaborative alliance. Join Cynet's global community to empower your organization and the industry to defeat hackers with cybersecurity's next generation of innovation. Learn more at security-innovation.org or Google Cynet, S-I-N-E-T. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. We're back with inventor and chief analytics officer at X-Analytics, Mr. Bob Vessio. So, Bob, like, you guys have been building this thing for a little while. I, I've been really, you know, watching the growth of it. It's super cool. Um, but I don't, you know, you guys do some stuff on social media, the recent announcement, but it's not like you guys are that, you know, well-known out there other than your own personal stuff, right? And you're starting to get a lot of traction, and I'm curious to get your take on just kind of like, you know, how are, what's driving people to reach out to all of you um, proactively and, and kind of what's that look like? Yeah. So I think <clears throat> you're right, Andy, we're, we're, we're a small group, right. And, uh, and so, you know, we don't have a massive selling arm or marketing arm. So everything that's uh, that's been accomplished has really been accomplished through grassroots efforts um, even though we are a small organization, um, we do have a pretty interesting presence. I'll give an example. You know, we sit as board members on the Internet Security Alliance. So that's been really good for us to get out some of our thoughts and messages related to understanding cyber economics. And of course, uh, from uh, the Internet Security Alliance, we've had folks learn about us and then reach out directly to us, which has been wonderful. As part of the Internet Security Alliance, we've also uh, helped um, author components of the NACD Handbook, which is the National Association of Corporate Directors Cyber Handbook. And, um, and we are mentioned in there. We're one of the footnotes. Or actually, we're one of uh, the few organizations that's actually listed in the footnotes. Um, so through the NACD Handbook, we've had folks reach out to us as well, which has also been quite wonderful. Um, and then, you know, really everything else has just been through... Uh, our channel partners, um, you know, so obviously, you know, we've talked about how um, AIG is using our method and model as part of their underwriting platform. Um, so, you know, we get leads through our AIG relationship. Uh, but, you know, we also just have folks that we know in the industry or that we speak at events. And, and after those events, then people reach out to us and want to know more about our organization, want to know possibly how we could help them out with some challenge or tasks that they have. Yeah, the, the, um, NA, the NACD thing I think is fascinating, right? If you think about, you know, the 
constant theme in the CISO community around, you know, presenting to the board. What does the board care about? How do I translate cyber into language that board members speak? What are those conversations like coming from the other side, right? Uh, the board members like, I'm going into this board meeting to meet with the CISO again, and I'm hearing about mean time to respond and containment metrics and um, vulnerabilities. Like how do, you know, what's that top down conversation sounding like amongst the board of directors? You know, what we hear more often, Andy, is that from the corporate directors, they look at being in business as taking on risk which I think in some ways is, is different than how we in the cybersecurity community have been trained to think, right? We think if we see a risk, then it's something that needs to be remediated. But the corporate directors understand that you have to take risk in order to make money. So they're always willing to take risk. The question is, is you know, where is the calculated risk and then where does it become uncalculated risk? And so they, you know, really do want to understand what cyber means in financial detail so that they can take that calculated risk. And they may very easily decide, you know, look, we don't have a major problem related to cyber. We can very easily absorb that expected loss. We hear that a lot, right? They want to know that answer because they want to find out if it's something that they can absorb or tolerate. And if it's not, then, you know, we just want to make sure that we're making progress, uh, towards some future state that, that gives us that comfort, that gives us that ability to just absorb that risk. Um, and that tends to be the theme conversation. Now, of course, um, there are also legal and regulatory responsibilities uh, by the corporate directors, so they don't want to ignore those details. So if there were, if they're publicly traded, if there were a cyber incident, um, they want to know that they have the ability to report out to the shareholders on what the possible range of damage would, could be. Um, they feel that that is an obligation, but you know that's just one example of regulatory and legal responsibility that the board has related to cyber, and and they do want to make sure that they continue to honor those responsibilities. Right. Yeah. Make, makes sense. So, you know, what, what's the? I mean, look, obviously, Solar Winds and the recent FireEye breach and all that stuff. You know, Team City, everything going on there um, has has created a you know, heightened sense of awareness around supply chain. I mean, it's been going on in the industry for quite some time, but I think now it's really like, you know, probably hitting home at a greater level than maybe it did, you know, a couple <laughs> years ago, right? Or, I mean, the ransomware threat's been there and people are seeing that and, and, and it's continuing to grow. But I think now we're kind of at a point where it's like, wow, like you finally have this example of extremely sophisticated attackers that are not cyber crime or financially motivated necessarily, um, attacking supply chain in a very different way um, and the ability to detect that. And, you know, are, are you getting anybody, are you getting sense that, you know, uh, people want to evaluate their cyber, their supply chain a little bit differently from a cyber risk quantification perspective? We, we do. Um, you know, they're in the supply chain world in India, you know, I know you know this as well as I do. There, traditionally, there's been a mechanism of pushing out these big questionnaires um, to all of the suppliers. And it was just a way to get some information about, you know, how well are these suppliers handling cybersecurity? And, um, and it didn't really matter the context of the supplier or the supplier profile. It was really just, you know, we need to understand some basic information. Here's the 200 question questionnaire. 
And in some cases, organizations have been lucky with getting those questionnaires filled out. In other cases, they haven't been lucky. But those questionnaires in general have created a very protracted procurement process with onboarding new suppliers or even renewing current suppliers. And, um, and we do find that there's a push to find ways to find efficiency in that process. It's costing organizations a lot of money, even to the supplier as they're filling out those questionnaires, it's costing them money because that's time that they're spending where they could be spending elsewhere. And, um, and there's, and there's a, 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 a low tolerance threshold for continuing down that path. Um, so I think organizations are looking for efficiency. Well, the rating, uh, the security rating uh, solutions out there offer some of that efficiency, right? You could just go in and look up, for example, SolarWinds or Splunk or Microsoft or AWS or you know, whatever it happens to be. And very quickly through the rating solutions, you could get something that looks like a credit score or something that looks like an A, B, C, or D score. And from there, you could maybe avoid getting some of those questions initially that you wanted answered from that supplier. The, the flaw in both of those cases, Andy, is that um, they don't consider the supplier context. So if you have a supplier that's performing an HR function, you know, there are certain things you want to know about that supplier. You know, how many records are they processing or uh, service custodian for for your organization? Um, where are they located in the world? And, you know, if they're located in, in Europe, does something like GDPR fall into place? And you're missing that context through some of those questionnaires and that context through um, uh, the, uh, the ratings, uh, the security rating solutions that are out there. And what we've have been focusing on, Andy, is a way to really understand the supplier context. And by understanding the supplier context, um, then you can determine how deep you want to go in understanding um, the cybersecurity controls that are in place. And um, the way that we handle that is that we build these, uh, these tiers. So if that supplier context represents a low tier, then you could be done on the first step. And that first step could represent an efficiency of 30 minutes, which you know, could have been seven days of trying to get a very detailed questionnaire completed. Um, if you decide that that tier uh, is higher than low, if it's something like moderate or high, then you may decide to go deeper and, and, and get more control questions um, from that particular supplier so that you can better understand the cybersecurity practices that exist within that supplier context. Um, but what's interesting is once you do get that information in a financial result at the end, then ultimately the goal there is what do we do about it? Do we negotiate something better so that we have the right to audit that supplier? Do we push for them to have certain certifications like ISO 27001 or PCI DSS? Um, or you know, do we encourage that supplier to seek some sort of uh, risk transfer mechanism, like they buy cyber insurance so that if there were to be a breach, then we're protected in some capacity? But then ultimately, I think the organization now also has the power to decide you know, maybe we don't want to share those records with that supplier because they're not secure enough to share those highly confidential records. Or maybe we want to diversify where we have revenue dependency across more suppliers. So if that supplier were to go down, we don't lose 5% of our revenue. Now we only lose 2% of our revenue. Um, and, uh, and with our solutions, you know, they can make all of those decisions, but at the same time also expedite the entire process that's been a relatively slow and painful and, and somewhat expensive process historically. 
Yeah, it's it's interesting, right? So it it sounds like to me like you're look when I think about supply chain and third party risk, like you're you're as a company, you're in essence placing a bet on that company. And if you're going to evaluate that company and your output is going to be a letter grade or a, you know, 85 out of a hundred, right? Like, I don't know how you can understand the bet that you're placing um, with that kind of output, which is why I find what you're doing extremely interesting. And, when, you know, and, and at AIG, obviously when we were, we did some work together there, you know, I, I felt like, the way that that industry was placing bets was broken the same way the way we're placing bets on supply chain is broken. Um, you've obviously helped the cyber insurance underwriting world solve their problem with X analytics. Um, are you seeing parallels between the two, like supply, the way people are placing bets on um, their vendors compared to the way the insurance industry was placing bets on um, those potential insurance? Yeah, I think that's a great analogy, Andy. Yeah, it's almost where the cyber insurance market was in 2016 is where most of the world is at with supply chain today. Um, and I do think over the next four years, there's going to be a dramatic shift from you know, current methods to something that's better. And that better method will consider the supplier context and will give you um, a financial exposure related to that supplier. And you're absolutely right. You know, if if one supplier represents potentially 50 million of loss and another one represents 50,000 of loss, you know, truly you're, you're making a different bet on the suppliers, but you need to know that information to begin with, to even decide how you want to make that bet. And if you want to make that bet to begin with uh, after you know that detail. So I think I, I love that analogy, Andy. I think that's exactly right. So, so listen, what we're talking about to me sounds like, an extremely premium service, premium, you know, like I, I feel like I, my mind immediately goes to like, wow, I need a huge risk management organization, a bunch of developers, um, you, know, it, you know, and I just feel like from what I've seen from what you've built, it seems like it's very consumable, um, almost like you get an ERM or a cyber risk management program in a box um, where it's easy to use for smaller companies. Like what, what's that feedback and what can be some of the thought process around, you know, the decision-making around how to take the high-end services around like what people do in risk management in really large companies and boil that down into a smaller application to be consumable by the masses. Yeah. So our, our goal is to make this really simple and easy for companies to take on. So the reason that we made supply chain a module um, as compared to a standalone product was that we did feel like we wanted to understand the financial exposure to the parent entity, right? To the organization that's hiring those suppliers. And, um, and so we always start off with our X analytics enterprise solution. Um, and the reason for that is that, you know, within 30 to 60 days, we're gonna have a really good understanding of what the exposure profile and what expected loss and impacts look like across key loss categories for that organization that's hiring the suppliers, right? So that's completed within 30, 60 days. And that process is relatively painless. Um, and it, 
we can go at different depths depending on the comfort or the speed in which the organization wants to, to move at. So we have some organizations, Andy, that want to get an enterprise view um, very, very fast because they have something coming up like a board meeting. And we have uh, ways to go in that are very preliminary and light touch. And we can have results literally within 48 hours. So somebody came to us today and said, well, I have a board meeting. I need to have an initial set of dashboards. We could have those dashboards ready within 48 hours because all the backend variables are populated. All of the math is already done. All we have to do is collect some information that's specific to that organization so that we can populate those dashboards. And we can do that really, really quickly if we need to. Um, once we do that, then there's a little bit of customization or personalization that goes into modifying some of the um, questions within the supplier module, just so that it's related specifically to that organization. And um, that process takes us about two weeks. And after two weeks, we basically give that organization a self-service tool. And that self-service tool allows them to move through their supplier ecosystem at a pace that makes sense for them. And, um, and what we tend to find is that, uh, you know, there are some organizations, once we give them that self-service tool, they start uh, one by one going through their suppliers. And within 30 days, you know, they've already looked at, you know, maybe 20, 30 different suppliers. After two months, they've looked at maybe 60 suppliers. After three months, maybe 90 suppliers. So they start to work through that process really, really quickly. I do want to point out one thing. The reason that we look at the enterprise first um, is that there is the reality that a supplier is directly connected to the organization. SolarWinds is a great example of that, right? SolarWinds wasn't really, really handling data records as a custodian uh, for organizations. Um, they weren't handling things like intellectual property because they were manufacturing equipment or gear for an organization, um, but they were directly connected. And one of the questions that we have is the supplier directly connected to your organization? And if the answer is yes, now everything that's exposable within that organization that's hiring the supplier now goes into the context of that supplier uh, financial understanding, which changes how you look at that supplier, supplier tremendously as compared to, again, the rating systems or some of those long, overwhelming uh, control questions that were distributed out to those suppliers. Again, yeah. I'll pause there, Andy. Yeah, and I, I think that's all. It's really cool. I mean, the other thing that I think is really neat too is that if I understand it correctly, you you can get some initial information and initial baseline assessment of a supplier without actually asking the supplier any questions, right? That's, so we, when we talk right. about that need for the big questionnaire, like you know, you you may not get a response back from a vendor at all. Right. If you send a questionnaire, you know, or because maybe you don't, you're not a big enough customer or they're too busy, whatever it may be. But at least it sounds like with this, you get that initial feel for initial assessment of what's, you know, the risk posture may be, even if you never get another response back. Right. So I think that part seems uh, really cool to me. Yeah. And that's, and that's been a favorite by our customers, right. Is that first step where you're, you know, and, and, and a lot of that first step is answered by folks in procurement or the business group that's hiring that supplier. You know, they go through and they start answering like, wow, okay, this supplier is servicing a supplier function of this type. And it's for this particular business unit. And, oh yeah, that supplier does have a direct impact on revenue. And that supplier is uh, holding customer PII records. And, you know, it's 10,000 of those records. And, oh, yeah, that customer does have access to intellectual property. You know, as they start to answer those questions and they, uh, in that first step, get an understanding of um, that supplier context and what the financial exposure looks like 
uh, without even understanding any of the cybersecurity controls that are in place for that supplier. Of course, as they dig deeper, especially if it's necessary, and they do understand the cybersecurity controls that are in place, you know, maybe they have a SOC 2, SOC 3 report, maybe they want to answer specific control questions, then they can see where that financial exposure starts to drop. Every one of those control answers that they get from the supplier uh, lessens the probability of event. And by lessening the probability of event, that financial exposure value is also coming down at the same time. So it can be beneficial not only for the supplier to go through that process, but also for the organization that's hiring that supplier to go through that process to get a better understanding of that financial exposure related to that supplier. Yeah, I mean, it just seems to me like you're creating a partnership amongst the two companies doing business together where you can have a better understanding of each other's shared um, risk as opposed to just, you know, a legal compliance. Yep. I checked it. We did it. This is what they told us at that time. So when we have a problem, we can go back to them and said, at this point in time, you said, this is what you had. Um, yeah. so I, I like that concept, especially if we start to get into your critical vendors, right? Your highest level tiered vendors. Um, and you need to have that partnership because it's just, uh, uh, the risk can be too great, right? And I think that's a really, really great thing. But, but Bob, are, are you are you starting to see certain industries kind of come on board a little faster than others? Um, you know, in the supplier context, we are getting a lot of interest from uh, folks in the mining industry and the manufacturing industry, of course, because they have, you know, really interesting supply chain ecosystems. Um Obviously, the technology companies are coming to us because, you know, even though they themselves are a supplier, right, to many organizations, they also depend on third parties and supply chain, right, to run their organizations. So we're getting a lot of interest from the technology companies that are out there as well. Um, The area that I'm surprised that we're not seeing more and more interest of, especially here based on 2020 uh, results, is the healthcare industry. We really don't get a lot of uh, healthcare organizations reaching out to us. I'm not exactly sure why, um, but most of our customers are in, you know, things like the manufacturing, mining, energy, technology, financial services, um, life sciences, you know, which is a little bit of healthcare, but not entirely healthcare. Um, you know, that's really where we're getting most of our interest from at this point, Andy. Yeah, it's cool, man. Really cool. Um, you know, I, I would definitely be interested in understanding kind of what do you think is next for, you know, the future of cyber economics and just kind of how, where do you think this goes? Well, you know, I think, and this has already been talked about um, under the Biden administration, if DHS starts to put together metrics related to control effectiveness, I actually think that's going to be a good thing um, and that is going to help feed the models that are cyber economic models, even like ours. You know, we do all that work on our own today uh, by aggregating major intel sources. But, you know, if, um, if that were to be something that was publicly available from the federal government, you know, I do think there would be an improvement. Uh, there'd be less bias in the data set as more and more entities are feeding into DHS. So I could see that as being a really, really good thing, right? And it allows lots of organizations to be leveraging the same source of data. Um, you know, just like some organizations today are using the US CERT data or uh, data that's coming out of Veris. Um, so, so that would be good, right? And that, that could help cyber economic efforts. 
Um, we are seeing that uh, organizations like MIT are trying to put together models that are similar to what we've already have in the marketplace. I don't think they're necessarily doing it from a commercial standpoint, but they're doing it more from an academic standpoint. So I think there is a growing interest in getting these models developed from an academic uh, level and maybe even introduced into the educational process for folks that are wanting to do cyber economics as a career. Uh, which, you know, Andy, back when you and I went to college, right, that wasn't even considered. Uh, computer science was barely a thing when you and I went to college. Um, and then um, uh, I think that, you know, at a certain point, boards, and we're hearing this right through the NACD and through the Internet Security Alliance, I do think that boards are going to start expecting where all uh, reporting of cyber is done in a financial way. And um, so that it can be integrated in with all the other risk uh, for an enterprise risk management perspective. And I do think that's going to be an initiative that's started by the corporate directors and, and eventually bleeds out to all of the Fortune 500 and Fortune 1000 companies. But over time, will uh, just be something that's natural to every organization, like filing taxes is natural to every organization in the United States. I think it's just going to become something that everybody's used to over the next three to five years. Yeah, really interesting stuff, Bob. All right, we got to take another short break to hear from our sponsors, but don't go away, folks. We'll be right back with more from inventor of and chief analytics officer of X Analytics, Mr. Bob Vessio. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America. As CISOs manage known malware attacks, they also contend with the unknown unknowns. With 24-7 Hacker Innovation, where do CISOs place their next security investment bet? Find the answer with Signet. With forums and public and private partnership dinners in Toronto, London, Singapore, Tokyo, and across the U.S., Signet is a mission-focused, purpose-driven global community advancing the next generation of cybersecurity solutions. As an entrepreneurial ecosystem super connector, Signet brings innovators, top cybersecurity professionals, solution providers, investors, and government executives into a collaborative alliance. Join Signet's global community to empower your organization and the industry to defeat hackers with cybersecurity's next generation of innovation. Learn more at security-innovation.org or Google Sinet, S-I-N-E-T. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. We're back with inventor of and chief analytics officer of X-Analytics, Mr. Bob Vessio. All right, Bob, look, cyber economics is still new. Like you said, there's no like, 
you know, PhD yet in cyber economics. I don't think we're still working through this as an industry. It's you've invented a lot of the new modeling. Um, I got to believe there's still some confusion out there. Like what, what is the biggest kind of pain point that you're experiencing um, around people getting their head wrapped around cyber economics? Yeah, that's a great question, Andy. Um, you know, we still find that there's a lot of confusion and misunderstanding between the impact of an event and expected loss. Um, expected loss is the consideration of all probabilities multiplied by impact. And so, um, you know, when you look at expected loss, we'll just make this really simple. Say that an organization has a million dollars of annual expected loss. That means that, you know, uh, based on all the possible probabilities of the different types of cyber incidents that could take place across a set of loss categories like data breach and business interruption, that aggregated amount is a million bucks. Now that million dollars isn't going to exactly occur every year, but based on probability over time, uh, you're going to see what translates to about a million dollars of damage uh, as you stack up the years. But you know it's going to come in really odd times, right? Like maybe one year you'll have two cyber incidents that relate to $5 million of total damage, or maybe you have one really significant event on year five that represents $100 million. Um, and we see that, right? We see these abnormal returns um, in the way that things happen within organizations. So, but that expected loss is really just a guide to give you an understanding of all those probabilities and all those impacts and what you could be looking at from a financial exposure standpoint on an annual basis. Impact is what is the result of a cyber incident. So if I were to have a data breach and that data breach were 500 million records, what would that financial result look like? And what's interesting is that, you know, at a certain point, every organization is gonna have an incident that's gonna lead to an impact, whether that impact is insignificant or highly significant is going to depend on a, a wide range of variables. But the reality is at some point, something's going to take place. So to help people understand this, I talk about hurricanes in Florida. Um, you know, obviously any home in Florida is prone to a hurricane. At some point in the history of that home, a hurricane may go by. And, uh, and you're paying out on insurance on an annual basis um, for uh, the, the damage that could occur from a hurricane. And that um, premium for that insurance is considering some of that expected loss amount, the deductibles considering some of that expected loss amount. And over enough years, uh, the bet is being hedged that, you know, that um, at some point, some of those homes are going to be damaged by a hurricane. And sure enough, if a hurricane does go through and it wipes out the entire home, you know, that could represent a million dollars a loss because that home was valued at a million dollars. And the reason um, I mentioned this, Andy, is that I think organizations need to make risk management decisions based on both realities. One is, do I want to do things to lower my probability of event? And if I do those things, do I look at a better expected loss on a per annual basis? And do I get that expected loss to something where I'm comfortable, where I'm willing to take on risk, but it's calculated risk, as we were talking about earlier. But on the other lens, if I were to have an event, you know, whether it's a, a massive record data breach or a 48-hour business interruption or a ransomware event, whatever it happens to be, then am I prepared for that? Do I have 
the ability to absorb such an impact, even if it's low probability, do I have the, the ability to absorb such an impact? And if I don't, what are the things that I can do to help prepare for that? Could I buy insurance to cover some of that impact? Could I make other decisions like maybe, uh, you know, uh, selling off a portion of my business or maybe diversifying a portion of my business so that if that impact were occur, it wouldn't be as great as I'm looking at today. But I feel that organizations really need to make a decision based on understanding those impact amounts and what those impacts could look like, even if they're catastrophic, but at the same time, understanding the things that they could do related to that expected loss and lowering the probability of event. Now, one really interesting thing, and we hear this all the time, Andy, that's related to those two things, is even though I'm putting better controls in place, for the most part, better controls never change the impact of an event. That impact amount stays relatively the same. Yes, there are some things that can make it a little bit higher, a little bit lower, depending uh, on circumstances. But for the most part, the impact of that event is going to be what it is, just like if a hurricane wipes out the home, the full damage of that home is what it is. Um, and we really want organizations to understand the difference between those two things, that expected loss and the impact of an actual event. And Andy, I'll, I'll pause here to see if that helped. Maybe there's some questions that you're thinking of. Yeah, no, it's perfect, man. I really just want to finish up the show with getting that getting that view out there. I wanted to make sure that you know people understood that kind of a little bit deeper in an XA and the world of cyber economics. We need a great job of that. Bob, I really appreciate you coming on the show, buddy. Yeah, absolutely. Andy, thanks for having me and happy to do this again. All right, bud. We'll have you on again soon. All right, folks, time for us to bounce up on out of here. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Stay frosty out there. Thank you for tuning in this week to Task Force 7 Radio. To learn more about Task Force 7 Radio, please visit our website at taskforce7radio.com. Be sure to join your host, George Reedus, again next Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel.